Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. July, and as the other elders were teaching and preaching, they did a great job, and they also broke my podium somehow. Somebody did. So I, I got some more real estate here. Uh, so thanks, Darden. I think he's out there, but Darden, it's the same stand, but we put a little bit larger block of wood on top, and so now I don't know what to do with all the space. Um, so if I get distracted up in here, I'm rearranging my room, and uh, it's fun. Um, uh, something else, and... and uh, Jeremy and I didn't get a chance to connect, but I mean, praying for unity in the church, we need that, but I also want to just take a minute, and um, uh, at Refuge, um, God has not uh, necessarily, we have, we have a couple, uh, but, but God has not necessarily blessed us with like doctors and lawyers and, and, and that, but he, he has um, given us uh, a number of um, uh, nurses, he's given us a number of social workers, and he's given us a number of teachers. Uh, and um, uh, I want to also just um, take a minute here, and I want to I want to pray for teachers as uh, they are at the middle of a firestorm um, that I don't think any of them ever signed up for uh, when they went to whatever uh, schooling uh, that they went to, and they just they signed up. Teaching is a I, I think teaching is a calling for sure. Um, but as, as with so many, uh, nobody, nobody anticipated something like this. And so if, we, if you would just join me for a few minutes, uh, I want to pray for teachers. And, and hear me, uh, teachers in public school, teachers in private school, uh, teachers in homeschool. It's not like their lives have not been turned upside down. Um, and, uh, and, and administrators. Um, we, we, need, we pray for administrators and wisdom there. And I should probably, we, I know we have administrators. We're, we're in impossible days, uh, and for parents and all that. So there's, let, me, um, let me take a minute and pray for that as well. God, you are good. You are merciful. We are called to uh, fear you more than anything else. We are called to love our neighbor well in response to your love and mercy to us. Um, we are called to love sacrificially and to actually lead the way in sacrificial love, and there's a lot of opinions of what that looks like. Um, and I want to lift up right now uh, teachers to you. I am immensely grateful for the teachers that have pulled in, poured into my kid's life. Uh, in that, there should probably be a confession uh, for us as parents how easy it is to pass off some of our responsibilities at times to other people and get upset when those people fail our expectations of them. So I want to confess my own uh, issues there to be grateful for the teachers that have poured into my life, uh, to poured into my children, um, to uh, and and not also then neglect my own calling uh, to teach and and train them as well. Um, we just ask for incredible wisdom. There's no win here. Um, there is no way to satisfy all the people. We are mad and angry with understanding, and then the minute a decision is made, we're mad and angry because it's not the wrong decision we wanted to be made. So we can be a fickle people as well. Um, so I pray that you would pour out supernatural wisdom. I pray that your followers 
uh, that we as your followers, again, would lead the way with grace and mercy, not to, not to uh, the neglect of people who may not be in a position that we're in, um, not in pride and, uh, and, and indifference, um, not to withdraw from the community around us necessarily, but to be those who, who trudge forward in the making of peace, which means oftentimes it means going first into the battle. So I pray that we would, um, that we would have immense wisdom to do that and to do that well, that we'd be faithful in praying uh, for the servants uh, of our community as you have called us to do. So thank you for teachers, thank you for administrators, thank you for kids, for parents, uh, and I pray for not only St. Charles, but for Francis Howell and Zumwalt and, uh, and Wentzville and Orchard Farm and Parkway and Hazelwood and all of the school districts in this area that are wrestling with some really hard decisions. Uh, I pray that we, would, um, that we would be on the front lines both in prayer and in grace, uh, helping those things to take place. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, all right, I am. Uh, I'm really glad that uh, you guys are here. It's good to see some some new faces, not new faces, but new in the last six months faces. And it was great to have outdoor service last week. Um, and we're, again, we're going to do that again. We're going to tempt. We're going to. I feel like we're tempting God here by trying another August outdoor service. Uh, God was gracious. If you don't apply God's grace to last Sunday and it being 75 degrees out on August 2nd, then um, you do not believe in a supernatural being, divine being who rules and guides and governs the universe. Not that we deserved it, but that does not happen. So uh, I am chalking that up to God's mercy. Uh, this week, <clears throat> we're actually going to... Um, uh, get into the second of three portions of the parable. So we're still in a series on parables, but we're getting to the second of three portions uh, of parables, parables if we've broken them down. Uh, the first set of parables that Jesus told we called the kingdom parables. Uh, the kingdom parables, uh, Jesus was not telling us who's in and who's not in, uh, but he was telling us this is how the kingdom of God is, is this is how it comes about. This is how it, it starts. This is how it takes shape in the world. And the, and the parable that kicks all of those off in, in every gospel but John is the parable of the sower, that the sower comes around and seed is, is scattered everywhere. Uh, and, and that seed is going to grow. Um, and that is the parable that kicks off everything else. And so we see all of these parables about the kingdom of God is it, it's not threatened by weeds. Uh, it, it, it's like a lamp to be put on a lampstand. Um, we see that it can be snatched out by suffering, uh, and it can be, it can be uh, hindered uh, through other distractions of the world, but that, but, but that it, it grows, um, and it continues to grow. And, and here's what's frustrating about it being a seed, is it doesn't necessarily grow the way we want it to, right? We like formulaic. If you've ever done gardening or lawn or tried to grow a plant, we want formulaic. A plus B always equals C. Just tell me what side to be on. Tell me what, where should I stand on this issue and this issue. And, and God says, it's, it's like a seed. It's going to work in hidden ways. It's going to, a lot of transformation is going to take place that you don't even see it at work. And the call of Jesus is, follow me. Trust me. Put your faith in me and obedience in me. Humble yourself, forfeit your own kingdom, and, and it'll work 
in there. And it will grow. And it will bear fruit. And when you need to be watered, you will be watered. And when you need pruning, you will get pruned. And so that was the first set of parables. And then we get into the feeding of the 5,000, which we looked at last week. And what that does is that kind of reveals what the crowds of people uh, heard when Jesus talked about kingdom. Now, I, I, want you to, I want you to know that when we're talking about these crowds of people that are around Jesus, this is not like middle-class suburbanites that are like, you know what, we should go check this guy out. 95% of people in this day, in this region, were not even like day-to-day living. This was a desperation type of thing. Some of them had homes. They were multi-generational homes, farmers, agriculture, all this. They weren't like, they didn't have savings. They're like, you know what, let's take some vacation time and go hear this guy talk. Um, And so these people that are following Jesus around are are a pretty desperate uh, group. And they heard Jesus talk about this uh, this, er, this kingdom, and they put it into their realm, right? The earthly realm. Oh, you're the leader of the rebellion. You're the prophet. You're the one that we, we've heard about. You're going to come and overthrow the oppressors, and we're going to be back on top. You should be king. Now, this is very important for our day, okay? This is what you need to hear. What Jesus does not do is Jesus is not in the business of just transferring power from one group to another group. Jesus is not saying what I want to do is I want to take power from the, from the oppressive Romans and give them to the oppressed Israelites so that the Israelites now can gain power and one day probably go right back to oppressing the Romans. Okay? That, that, is some of the, that is some of the stuff that's going on in our day. That's the critique of some of the other stuff that's going on in our day. And, and if you don't think that the transfer of power from one group to another group, that eventually will rise up, and once they get power, will then overrule and do the same things, let me encourage you to read both history and Scripture. <laughs> it happens all the time. And Jesus says, that's not what I'm doing here. That's not what I'm doing here. I'm not doing a transfer of power from this group to the other group. But he does tell us how to deal with power. He is talking about a kingship that is over all the earth. That is not for the wealthy and the privileged. It is for all people. And so to be aware on all sides of that. And I think that's critical. And when they find out, when the crowds find out that that's not what Jesus is about, Jesus is like, here's the deal. I'm the king, and I'm going to give you the bread of life. Feast on me. And they go, oh, <laughs> that's, mm. we thought you were going to do something else. And then they just kind of head out. And they leave. They're very disappointed. And so now we're going to move into the parables that are following the feeding of the 5,000. Um, but it's between this time, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, and before Jesus actually enters into Jerusalem, the culmination in Holy Week of his of his life and ministry. There's some parables. Most of them are in Luke. Today we're going to be in uh, Matthew. And um, what he's going to do is he's kind of, Jesus kind of shifts tactics. He moves from preaching necessarily this, essentially this kingdom, uh, and he starts presenting like, what does a kingdom person, what does entrance into this look like? Who, who is justified? And he starts giving these outrageous examples of grace. And what he's, what he's doing is both his disciples and the crowds, he's, he's kind of upsetting the way that things generally happen. So this morning we're going to look at this really weird visual 
parable with Jesus pulling off a a very interesting kind of magic trick. So, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 17. Let me read this for you. Um, Verse 24 through 27, the end of chapter 17. Um, And this is a visual parable. When they, Jesus and the disciples, had come to Capernaum, that's kind of Jesus' home base, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. (laughs) And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take the toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when Peter answered, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast out a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that, give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of the Lord. And you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Uh, just a little quick interruption here. I know, like, um, I am, I'm thrilled. Uh, kids, I'm going to say kids as a wide range, young people, um, I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, I know um, for both parents and kids, this cannot be the most entertaining place in the world. Um, my own family, uh, they watch from home uh, for that very reason. Um, but I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're sticking through it. Uh, when Jesus taught, uh, don't think there were kids running everywhere, right? And so for parents, let me set you free. If your kids are making noise and if they're kind of, I, I know I hate, when the, I don't want you to feel like bothered and upset, but I definitely don't want you to feel shame. Like, oh my gosh, my kid's the one that always makes noise. My kids always make noise too. And they have not grown out of that yet. Um, so I'm really glad you're here. And I want you to check this out. This is, this is a parable that Jesus, do, this is something that Jesus does. He tells Peter to go catch a fish and the fish has the exact amount of money inside it for them to pay the temple tax. Um, so, I don't know if you've ever gone fishing, and even more than that, I don't know if you've ever caught a fish with money in it. <laughs> this, is a, this is amazing to me. So this morning we're going to look at this weird parable, and this is, these are the three points we're going to do. We're going to do the setting, what's the setting that's going on here, uh, what's the point of this parable, and then what's the response. So let's start off with the setting, and I'm going to try to do this quickly. Um, Jesus and his disciples, they're coming back to Capernaum. Capernaum is kind of their home base. Uh, They've been doing ministry around the area. Jesus has taught in the synagogue, so he's familiar with Capernaum. He's been there. Uh, In chapter 17, from a literary perspective, they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus, like, pulls back the curtains and reveals to Peter, James, and John, like, who he really is, and they see him, like, glowing and it's, it, again, is another kind of a weird um, thing that takes place. And they're coming down, and it's funny because they see the, full, like, the fullness of Jesus' glory and how bright he is, and then they're coming down the mountain and they get in an argument about who's going to be the best in the kingdom of God. So if you ever feel like, man, I just don't get this Christian life, I am terrible at this, let me, t- let me tell you to find great comfort in the disciples because they don't get it either. Uh, and it's, it's all throughout. There's a level of going, oh, okay, okay, I am like the disciples. 
Um, so they're arguing about that. They come down the mountain, and uh, there's the father there whose son is having seizures. He, he's being oppressed by a demon. And, um, and, and the father pleads to Jesus. The disciples can't do anything. They're like, we've tried, and nothing's happening. And, 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 um, and the father says to Jesus, I, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? And then Jesus casts out, and he heals the boy. Uh, and, and so they're back in Capernaum now. And these two guys uh, who are the collectors of the tax uh, come to um, Jesus. Also, Jesus has been telling his disciples about his death and resurrection. The Messiah must suffer and die uh, uh, and then return. And, of course, they have no idea what he's saying. They're troubled. They're puzzled um, at at what's going on there. Uh, So they're back, and apparently Peter's by himself, and he's out walking. And these two guys, these two temple staff who are responsible for collections, come up to Peter and, and they say this kind of confusing question. Even In the Greek, it's a little confusing as well, but they just say, does your teacher not pay the tax? And I love Peter's answer, right? God bless that man. Yes. Yes, he does or yes, he doesn't. And you can just have Peter kind of going and backing away. And Peter goes inside the house, and before he can say a thing and mess it up, Jesus is like, here's a good teaching moment. All right, Peter. Come here. And he asked him this question. From whom do the kings of earth collect their taxes or their tolls? Do they collect it from their sons or do they collect it from others? Now, let me give you another background here, okay, because this is critical. We are American. Um, We don't get this. And I'm also going to urge you to put your tax issues, like holster the gun right now, all right? This is not about... American tax issues. In this day, the Romans, if you were Roman, you did not, you did, certainly didn't pay all of the taxes, and your tax rate was a lot lower as a citizen of Rome. Who paid the taxes were the lands that they had conquered and governed. The non-Romans paid the taxes. The Jews were heavily financially oppressed by Romans in their tax brackets, whether they had money or not. Um, And so, uh, shoot, I was supposed to get to that second. Let me put that on the shelf for a minute. Come back over here. The temple tax, okay? Let's start with that. The temple tax, it's about a day's wage. This was not a Roman tax. This was a Jewish tax. Uh, and it was, um, it was established in Exodus. It's for the upkeep of the temple. Uh, and it is, it is a half a shekel, or, uh, which a shekel is a Jewish currency. A drachma is a Roman currency. All right? Two drachma equals half a shekel. Uh, half a shekel is actually the currency created to pay the temple tax. That's what it's for. Um, and so Peter is asked about the temple tax, but Jesus actually changes the subject when he talks about kings and the national tax. Okay? So Jesus asks about the Roman tax. Peter is confronted about the temple tax. Are you staying with me on this? I am not, uh, I am not an accountant or a tax man nor the son of a tax man. Uh, so I'm trying to explain this as best I can. So um, when Jesus asks Peter about the kings of the earth, 
he is asking them, who pays, the Romans or others? Well, the Romans charged other people for their taxes. That's who paid for Rome. Um, to take this even more internally, certainly the king, who, the king who passed down the kingship from generation to generation, his family would certainly not pay taxes. It's like taking money from one side of your house to the other. So this word can be translated as either citizens or sons. It, it does, the only way that that would make a difference is if we get caught up in our own modern-day issues of who pays taxes and we take this a whole different direction than what Jesus was intending. Uh, but kings would not, certainly not tax their own family. They would not tax their own sons. That would be, that would be working against themselves. And so Jesus asked Peter this question, and I can only imagine Peter's frustration at this point. What's with all these questions? What, what am I, the shell answer man? And, and so Peter answers correctly. The others, ugh, yes. And then Jesus says to him, that's right. And the sons are free. And, and, then, that, and then that's it. Do you get it? Okay, so what, what's Jesus getting at here? What's he pointing out? What's the teaching moment where he's pulling Peter aside? Uh, Matthew is a book written primarily to Jewish people and, so, um, and to Jewish converts, and so there's a, an element of that, but we still need some explanation because this is kind of confusing, right? There's a couple of different angles and a different hints of, of maybe what Jesus is getting at here. Uh, and then we still have to go this kind of ridiculous miracle that Jesus pulls off here. So first, uh, in the temple, the only ones who don't pay the temple tax are the priests. I don't think it's as easy to just kind of dismiss that Jesus is saying uh, that um, this ragtag group of guys here, the disciples, are in, in, in this new resurrection age are actually going to function as priests. Now, he's not outright saying that, but there's a hint toward that. And a lot of times, if you think of the disciples and you think, yeah, the disciples of Jesus, these were like deacons at a First Baptist type of church, and they were good, upright, and, and noble men. N no, no. They were tax collectors, which were hated. They were fishermen. They were, they were salt-of-the-earth type people, which has never been used as, a, as a, uh, an, an encouraging. That's usually kind of a put-down. And, and that's, what these, that's what these guys were. And so there's an, there's an inference in there of Jesus saying, the priests don't have to pay the temple tax. There's an element here of we're priests. But there's more because Jesus doesn't say the priests are free. He says the sons are free. Um. This parable has been, been messing around in my brain for, for a couple weeks. It's, it's interesting. Uh, of all the parables to choose, why choose this one to start off? And, and I, I'm not really sure. Uh, there are, in reading different commentaries, there's con some consensus on what this means or what this implies. Uh, some people try to be really precise with it. Some people just wonder in awe at, at, at its mystery, just kind of thrown in here. Uh, I would fall more to the second category while just thinking of... of, um, uh, of what Jesus is trying to say. So let me give you some of my thoughts, with, complete with a side of mystery. Uh, there's just some stuff that will leave us wondering. And, and Jesus is not, necessi not necessarily telling us to solve this riddle with great precision. 
Uh, if anything, what we've seen in the parables is a lot of times Jesus, the work that he's doing is in leaving us going, okay, so you mean this or do you mean this? Like the worst question we could ask when Jesus gives, parable, gives a parable is to go, is this going to be on the test? Right? It's supposed to get in and around and mess with us a little bit. Um, so I'm not worried about finding the exact precise meaning uh, of this parable, but, but how does it maybe need to mess with us a little bit? Um, some of the pieces to put together, Jesus is revealing more and more as he gets closer to Jerusalem who he is. Uh, we are going to see, and we have the, the ability to see now what has been fully accomplished, and so these words have more meaning to us now than, than certainly they did to Peter. Um, what did, uh, in, throughout the Old Testament, think about this, what did the temple represent? Why did God have his people build the temple? All ancient gods had homes, they had houses, they had dwelling places, and that was the, that was the fortress of your God. Uh, it was the central place of worship. It represented the presence of your God. And so when Jesus has his temple built, when God has his temple built in Jerusalem, it's built as this is the household of God. This is God's house. It's where he dwells. It's where he is. And we see throughout the Old Testament of the different rituals and the different things you had to do to come into the presence of God. And what Jesus seems to be hinting at a bit here is um, it would seem kind of, it, it doesn't make sense for Jesus to pay a temple tax at his own house. If this is his house, if this is the temple, not to mention that Jesus has talked about and continues to talk about I'm going to destroy that temple and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And so there's, there's more that the spiritual temple is going to be torn down and rebuilt. And the temple, the physical building structure as the central presence of God is actually going to be replaced by the temple of God as, as the people of God, the sons of God, that where his people are, there is where the presence of God dwells. with Christ as the cornerstone. And so Jesus is saying that there's, there's a lot here that we can pull out of, of what Jesus is implying here. And you may hear some of this stuff, and you may say, well, well, well okay, but, but aren't we missing the most important part with the fish? And let me tell you, no. <laughs> nope. We're not. Um, but, so we don't show offense, make sure the money collectors get their money. Pete, go do what you do. Go catch a fish, and inside that fish is going to be a full shekel, and that'll cover yours and mine, and that's how we'll pay the temple tax. Okay. Well, why is it in a fish? I have no idea. I have no idea. This miracle seems to be out of touch with the way Jesus normally does miracles, doesn't it? Like, I've, I've tried to labor the point in the past of all of Jesus' miracles point to this future reality. When he heals somebody, when he makes somebody come undead, when he, he, when, when, uh, when he walks through walls, it's because walls can't hold this further dimension that Jesus walks in that is far greater than the physical world. Like, I have answers for all these. So what, what future reality does this fish point to? No idea. Are fish going to have money inside them in heaven? I don't know. It's weird. This is more, this seems more apocryphal, 
right? More fantastical of Jesus making sandwiches out of mud pies or something weird. Um, uh, so here's the other reality, okay? And, and you may look and say, well, do, do you really believe that it happened? Uh, and my answer to that would, would be uh, yes, um, until you prove to me that it didn't. And, and here's why. This is not the point of what Jesus is talking about here. And here, here's my, my personal opinion, um, which I have moderate respect for, but I, I, you know, unless there's a really smart something that I've just not, that I've missed. Jesus is coming down off of the transfiguration. This is kind of entering into the second half of his ministry. They're going to begin the geographical descent, but actually physical ascent up to Jerusalem in a little while. And um, I think he's a little bit more relaxed. I think Jesus actually has a little bit of a sense of humor here. And here's what I think he's saying. Here's to the end of your ability to justify yourself through the upkeep of a religious accomplishments. Your ability to do that is as ridiculous as how I'm about to provide for your temple tax. Go take money out of a fish. That's crazy. Right. So is your religious ability to, to justify yourself. And here's a celebration to the end of that. I see this interaction and I can't help but see Jesus just like relaxed and, and this kind of this kind of you know like that smile and little little wink to Peter, you know, I'll tell you what, I'll provide the taxes. I got this covered. And and I love the idea of Peter going <laughs> like Peter, who is always seems to be confidently confused, of Peter just kind of nodding and going, yeah, okay. <laughs> like, you know, Peter nodding as if he totally gets it, and he has no idea what's going on. We see more as it comes out. And again, we don't, we don't see why this is provided, but, but that statement, the sons are free. Maybe for us, we should kind of look at what are, our, what, what, are the, what are our responses? What are our ramifications of this idea of being sons of God? And so just to finish with some thoughts on that, that statement right there. Some of us are here, um, and, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, uh, when we talk about being sons, in, in that day, the son, especially the firstborn son, was the, the heir. The firstborn son got the fullness of, the, of, of um, the inheritance. And so when we say sons, it implies sons and daughters. Like all that are children of the Most High God, it's as if we're all firstborn sons. Some of you this morning just need to hear um, that in Christ you are a, a child of the King that you belong here. And it's not you belong here because um, of your ability to keep up with the religious expectations, because you can pay uh, the temple tax, because you have function in keeping all of these religious obligations well. Uh, those things aren't bad, and we're going to see that in these, uh, in, in these um, parables that we have. But 
they become bad when they function as your justification or your shame. There's no way I could be a child of the king because I can't, I can't do these things. And Jesus would absolutely amen you on that. Our sonship comes from Christ's radically gracious provision. This kind of, and I'm going to try to tell this story really quick. It, it, it reminds me of the story of Mephibosheth, if, you, if you're familiar with that at all. It's in Second Kings, and basically he was a descendant of Saul. He was Jonathan's son, and, and when kings transitioned in power, when it went from one family to another family back then, you take out the whole lineage lest there's a rebellion led up, right? So when Saul and Jonathan are killed, Mephibosheth is in trouble. His uh, caretaker takes him and tries to run and flee to avoid him getting killed. Uh, and when she does, she drops him and he becomes crippled and it just affects him his whole life. And so as David settles into his kingship, he asks, are there any other heirs out there? And of course, when you hear that, they're like, yes, there are. And so they bring Mephibosheth and he comes before King David and he comes with his head low, expecting to receive the death sentence. And David lifts up his head and he says, here's the deal. Because of my love for Jonathan, your father, I'm giving you all your inheritance back. And now, from here on out, you will dine at the king's table. In Christ, this is what Jesus says to you. And if you're sitting here in shame this morning, and you're like, I can never do this, I'm and constantly crushed by guilt, we... we we don't necessarily live in an honor and shame culture at all, but, but we do, we are growing in a huge um, shame culture. Um, and, and where a lot of our value seems to come by shaming the group that isn't our group, right? And, and the internet mob is great un, until you do something wrong that happens to be recorded. And if you, if you don't want to be on the internet, well, you should stop going out in public <laughs> or private or being around phones in general. And so you may end up on something. And some of us just need to hear, in Christ, you are sons of the Most High God. You dine and feast at the table of the King. You don't have to prove anything anymore. You don't have to try to earn your spot. It is his gracious invitation and provision that you would sit there. And yet, whereas it is by God's grace that we sit at the table as sons and daughters of the Most High King, there are other things that being a child of God entails, right? Um, my pastor in seminary always used to say that God is not your heavenly grandfather. He's your heavenly father. Um, several years ago, we, had, we sold our houses. We, our our oldest two kids were six and four, and we had to go move in with my parents for a few weeks before we moved into our, uh, into our current home. And, um, and we gave my parents warning, like, you're not going to give them, since we're here, you're not going to give them ice cream at 10 o'clock at night and then send them downstairs. We will send them right back up. Okay? Because this is, this is my parents, and I, and I love them. I grew up in a very gracious home where we welcomed more and more people. Um, my kids would go to my parents' house and they would make a beeline for the refrigerator where my mom would keep those little creamer packets like the, you get at QT 
and my kids would, would like take shots of creamer packets. Yeah, I thought it was gross too, but they just, I think she would smuggle them out of QT. Um, my, my mom also always has a can of Ready Whip on hand, and my kids still to this day line up like little birds with their mouths open wide as my mom just shoots whipped cream into their, into their you know, oppressed little faces that just need more sugar, son. Um, that is a grandparent. That's what a grandparent's supposed to do, spoil you rotten and then send you away, but that's not a parent. A parent has to discipline and train as well as love and protect. A parent has to help a child see what's good for them and what's destructive for them. And even though they think something might be good for them, it will destroy them in the long run. And so a parent has to help set those boundaries over and over and over and over and over and over again. A parent is responsible to model how to, how to be responsible in lots of areas while also modeling a deep need for others and a deep need for grace and repentance. A parent has to fiercely love a child which means saying yes and saying no. One of the best advices on parenting that I've read was in a book where, where she just set the, the boundaries. She said, you've got to fall somewhere in between here to be able to say to your child, yes, I love you, and no, you can't have whatever you want. God's discipline is for those he loves. And so as a child, he grows us and he shapes us in, in holiness and in obedience and, and not just engaging every appetite we want, but resisting what is bad for us and enjoying what is good for us. And to become like Jesus. But as he grows us in holiness, this is not at all to the detriment or the neglect of being grown in radical grace to somehow forget where we came from or that the only reason we're sitting at this table is because of his grace alone. And sometimes the problem happens when it goes generation upon generation and we presume our position at the table and we see that it's our job to say who gets to sit here and who doesn't. Sometimes if we grow in holiness, we also grow in judgment. But we should grow in holiness and in incredible, outrageous grace that reflects the character of the very God who has demonstrated his outrageous grace to us. The danger on display here is the presumption of this is what gets me at this table. I've done this, I've done this, and I've done this. I can pay the temple tax. And Jesus goes, let me tell you what I think about that. Let me tell you where I can pull the temple tax from. Here's one place, a fish. The temple had become a place where the outrageous grace of God and the presence of God was only available to certain people. People who met the, the criteria who followed these rules, who did these things, people who paid the taxes, people who fit the profile, had it together, who could follow the external religious rules. Where we're going to go from here, in the next several parables, 
that we're going to look at. And here's what I want you to understand. Never in any, any of these parables is Jesus going to say obedience is bad. Lest you hear me saying, so what are we supposed to do? Just supposed to be obedient or just supposed to like not be obedient and do whatever? No. Here's how this is going to be tested in us. You sit at the king's table. You feast on what the king has made. But there's going to be one who runs off. And the shepherd's going to go after him. And are you going to be okay with that? When the shepherd brings back this one sheep, does he look at the 99 and say, you guys shouldn't have stayed in the, in, in the field? What happens to the hearts of the 99? Do they celebrate when the one sheep comes back? Or do they get defensive? What happens to the older brother when the younger brother returns home and the father runs out to rejoice and embrace? The older brother should be running right alongside. My brother's home. But the older brother goes, I have done everything. Where's my feast? The guy looking to justify himself tells Jesus, I have followed all these rules. I've loved the Lord my God and I've loved my neighbor. Wait, which neighbor? And Jesus shows an example of a Samaritan doing exactly what kingdom people should do. He's not saying the Samaritan is a follower of Jesus. He's not, saying the, he's not doing any of that. He's like, there's your example. Go be like him. He just can't. So let me encourage you over the next several weeks, when you hear these parables of this outrageous grace, and you feel that, that what about, or that yeah but, like welling up in you, let Jesus comfort you by saying, the only reason you sit at this table is because of me. Lest you think you have to defend my temple. This temple won't be destroyed. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have um, demonstrated grace. And I, you are faithful to point out our blind spots. And I am going to be the first one to say, I don't like getting my blind spots exposed. But this is what you do in these parables. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, freely bestowed on all who believe. What about this guy? Uh, not that guy. Well, can you celebrate this guy? Mm. What about the laborers that come at the end of the day and get paid the same amount? Well, that's not fair, Jesus. Your work through your kingdom people is that we would be humble, that we would reflect the goodness and the character of our generous God, that we would be gracious in our labor, in our generosity, in our love, in our grace, in our mercy.
So the opportunity we have here again over the next several weeks is for you to loosen the soil, humble us, encourage us, remind us uh, that in Christ we are children of the Most High King, and really, so we don't have to be defensive. There's a great freedom that comes with that. Um, Continue to give us eyes for the outsider, not just those in rebellion, but those in oppression, those who are left behind by the world around us, those who are pushed down. This is all part of a radical grace of experiencing uh, just the ability to sit at the king's table. May we reflect the character of our good and gracious God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.